Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning to worship together. Thank you for this family of faith. Thank you for those who've been here uh, much longer than I have, and thank you for those who are here for the first time. Some have come filled with joy. Others have come back blinking back tears and hardly wanting to be here. Thank you that you are the faithful, all-loving, all-sufficient God who can meet each one of us exactly where we are, and you love us too much to leave us there. I pray that you would speak to your, through your word and make me, uh, Lord, what I should be. I, I can't do this alone. It, it'll be a complete mess if you don't intervene and give all of us your help to teach and hear your word. I pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. If we haven't met or if we've met only briefly, I'm delighted that you're here. I met uh, about half a dozen people on the way in who were here for the first or the second time. Welcome. This is the season where people make New Year's resolutions. I have a single simple resolution regarding the church, and that is that the church will have a better senior pastor next year. I hope it's still me. Um, but I just hope to be a much better version of myself. Um, both you and the Lord deserve better uh, than what you're getting, and that, that's not false modesty. It's just a, a simple statement of truth and an invitation for you to pray for me uh, that God will help me make a reality things that, that He's shown me and, and really made clear, sometimes painfully clear to me. If you're here for the first time, Welcome. Uh, you're at Cross Point. We are a 54-year-old church. Uh, we meet in three services across the weekend, 9, 10:30, and 5:30. And I'm just delighted that you're here. You've been prayed for this week, especially. I have a heavy passage to share with you. I know it because God showed it to me providentially when I was 18 years old. As if you've been here for even a few weeks, it just comes up in my conversation and in my teaching continuously. It's just such an integral part of, of how God's shaped my life. I grew up in Mexico, and we're not entirely sure what happened there, but probably what happened is for a few years we lived in a city that was toxic. And my mother became ill, so from the, my middle grade school years, she's had all kinds of chronic pain, uh, particularly in those years, in my teenage years later, uh, absolutely blinding, debilitating migraines. Thankfully, God had provided doctors in the church that my parents started in Mexico, so she had excellent, really personalized care, but it got so bad that at its worst, the best the doctors could do for her was basically give her general anesthetic and put her to sleep for a few hours and then slowly wake her up, hoping that that had sort of broken the cycle. And it's hard. Chronic pain is brutal. It makes you ask all kinds of questions about yourself, your future. It makes you ask questions about God. And when it was, I was 18 years old, and the memory is one of those that is just seared in memory, I, I was standing over my mother's hospital bed. And my mom grew up on a farm. And if you've ever been around farmers, they're just tough people. You know, complaining's not allowed. They start working generally before the sun's up. 
they continue working long after the sun is down. The first time I was dragged from our, eventually, where we live, big city in Mexico, to the farm, I made a lifelong resolution to do whatever I had to do so that I never had to come back and help again. <laughs> and these are just rawhide, tough people. They don't complain. So to see my uncomplaining, tough mother blinking back tears and telling me that I would pray for her that she would actually die before she said or did anything in her pain that would make people doubt God. Whoa. Heavy at any age, especially when you're 18. God in His goodness had shown me the psalm I'm going to read to you a few weeks earlier. I read it with surprise, not knowing that there was such scripture in the Bible. It was darker than the darkest music I was listening to as a teenager. I was going through my teenage angst, and like teenage people sometimes do, I was magnifying my problems and looking for music to match my mood. Anybody ever do that? Just sit around and make yourself miserable? I didn't know that same kind of music was in the Bible. It is. There's a whole category of the Psalms known as the Psalms of Lament because the Psalms are the songs of Israel. It expresses people sometimes corporately, sometimes anonymously, sometimes like this morning with a named author showing you every strain of music you can experience in life as you follow God through it. Sometimes there's exuberant celebration, and in the Psalms of Lament, there are heartbreaking cries that if you read them seriously, will shock you. And all of the Psalms are written in light of the covenant. God, by His own will and by His own mercy, and because He simply is that good, had chosen to make a nation. There was nothing special about them, and He tells them as much. But he had made to Israel promises that are absolutely unparalleled in all of human history. The reason is what we just celebrated. Jesus, the Savior, was going to be born from this nation, and God was going to make people of no particular importance special in the world and bring from them a Savior. And their relationship was going to be governed by the covenant. In other words, a promise that God had made, quite literally in writing, that he would be faithful and merciful and he would love them with a steadfast love. Think of it as a, a love that won't let go, a love that can't be deterred, can't be slowed down, can't be minimized or pushed aside. He had even promised to fight their battles for them and to take care of their enemies for them. And the Psalms are their songs of worship individually and corporately as they walk through life with the God who made these promises. Open your Bible in two places, please. Psalm 13 first. And then hold that spot for just a moment. And let me show you the summary of the covenant. Look back in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. If you need a Bible, there should be one near you, by the way, in the seats. Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Exodus is barely the second book of the Bible. Here's a summary of the covenant, Exodus 34, verse 6. 
God is speaking to Moses and telling him who he, God, is and what God is going to do for Israel. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God says, this is who I am. I am the God who is. I am the God who is in charge of everything. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I am filled. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I am keeping steadfast love for thousands. I will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Does that sound good to you? Would you like to receive those kinds of promises? And then you're tempted almost not to read the second part because it becomes somewhat menacing. But if you're the person being given this promise, you realize that's good news for you as well. It says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, I promise good love and forgiveness and mercy to you, and I also promise that I'll deal with evil in the world. And when people stand against me and oppose you, I'll take care of them. You don't have to worry about them. I will repay. Sound good? Wouldn't you want the personal assurance that all your enemies will be dealt with in 2019? Say, I don't have enemies. Good for you. I hope you don't. But most of us do, at least from time to time. We have adversaries. We have competitors. We know people in business and sometimes even in family and friendship who clearly do not have our best at heart. God said, this is the kind of God I am. I am the God who is there And I'm loving, and I'm merciful, and I'm steadfast in my love, and I will forgive your sin and your iniquity, but if someone sins against me and against you, I'm not going to clear them. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to judge it, and the consequences will carry on for generations. Wow. What a God to have on your side. And that's David's understanding of God. Because when David writes Psalm 13, it's not clear exactly where he is in his season of life. Maybe he's being chased through the wilderness of Israel by King Saul, who has come to hate David and be envious of him, because Saul knows David is to be the next king. That's what some scholars have theorized Psalm 13 comes from. I don't know of any certain way to be sure. Or maybe maybe David already is the warrior poet king of Israel and David wakes up as king knowing every single day of his life that cities and villages of pagan people who hate his God would literally dance in the streets if David were dead by the end of the day. There's no way to understand the kind of pressure that David had to bear every single day of his life as a man who had been identified by God himself as a man after God's own heart, but who served as a leader and example and servant and shepherd to all of these people to whom God had made a promise. If you've ever had responsibility for other people, you might begin to understand a little bit of David's daily experience. 
And whatever else is happening in David's life, what I thought of as an 18-year-old kid as lucky Psalm 13 strikes you as surprising in view of the promises that God has already made David and his people. Look over with me in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Four hard, frankly, accusatory questions. How long? How long? How long? How long? And you may be going through my 18-year-old experience. You may be saying, I didn't know this stuff was in the Bible. Why is it? Because it's true. If you've never asked those questions of God in prayer, I'm so happy for you. And I hope that you never do. But you probably will. When I started my undergrad, one of my professors was a guy so old that he taught my parents. He taught us the Old Testament, which we said was fitting. We said he's excellent in teaching the Old Testament because he was an eyewitness to most of its events. <laughs> but with age came wisdom. First class, he said, how many of you have suffered? And we're freshmen. Most of us straight out of high school. So, as generally happens when you're only 18, most people kept their hands down. We really hadn't. We'd been through some stuff, but nothing that could really be called suffering as his tone indicated. Just two or three people raised their hand. And he said, good, I'm happy for so many of you have your hands down. So let me tell you something. You will. And I thought, why did I ever enroll in this stupid college? I got a guy who knew Methuselah telling me that hard times are on the way. Why am I here? And all these years later, I would still say that I haven't suffered, not really. I've had some challenges, but no real problems, not like some of you. Some of you bear burdens every day that teach me as your pastor what God is like because I know you bear them only by His grace. It's absolutely amazing. But for you, and for those who have not yet suffered, you would do well to reflect on the fact that these two verses are in the Bible. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you look carefully through that, David says, God, you've forgotten me. And it's even worse than that. It's not only that you've forgotten me, you're actively hiding from me. You're denying me your presence. I need you and I'm calling out to you and you're keeping away from me on purpose. Verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? That's a miserable place to be. 
I've been there just a few times, but maybe you've had the experience of having something that is so troublesome to you that the minute your eyes open, you start thinking about it. Ever had that? Not a lot of fun. You know things are getting better when you can go for hours, days, or weeks without thinking of it, but sometimes it's so bad. As soon as your eyes open and you realize you're you, you're still here, you start thinking, at least in my case, about that first cup of coffee, and then you're reminded. And the gloom just comes back down. That's what David is talking about, I think, in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? In other words, God, I'm only talking to myself because evidently you don't care anymore. You're hiding from me. You've either forgotten me or you're keeping away from me, so here I am all alone except for my enemies. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In other words, whatever is giving trouble to David, it's not only mere personal emotional angst. He actively has people opposing him. Again, if he's already king, and even before he was, someone actually wants him dead. Someone would look down at his dead body and celebrate and say, it's good. Good that we killed the shepherd boy. That's David's experience, and it's nothing less than a complaint against God. See, here's why this matters, folks. Sometimes I think evangelical churches like ours do an injustice to God's people because what we portray through our selection of the things we teach from the Bible and the songs we sing is that it's happy all the time. And it's not. Have you noticed? After the first service, a guy came up to me and said, I'm, I got to tell you, I almost didn't come today. I'm so glad I did. And I said, well, did you almost not come because of the sort of stuff I was talking about? He goes, yeah, exactly. It's a very, very common experience, especially right after Christmas. You put the lights away, you clean up all the wreckage, you realize that the bills are coming, and boom, down you go. And sometimes, as is David's case, it's much worse than that. Why is this in Scripture? Because it's true, because it's real. And a further injustice we do to people, I'm talking about pastors and leaders and Bible teachers, is to tell them to keep a happy face on no matter what. And I'm reasonably sure that especially on the Sunday after Christmas, it's hard to come to church for some people because they have believed a lie that everybody's happy and shiny and has got it together except me. I'm the single loser in this congregation. And I don't want to go hang out with the winners and help listen to them sing their happy songs because I, I stink. My life's hard. Nobody gets it. Everybody's shiny and happy, and they've got it together. And if they don't have it together, they'll figure it out by noon. <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just a zero. Here, David, again, expressing his complaint about God, a complaint against God. Why is this in the Scripture, I think, to at least give you sanctified permission to tell God the truth? I'd encourage you personally, very practically, 
You'll never be an inspired writer of Scripture as David was, but take a cue from him, and when you find yourself in the pit, write it out. Tell God what's really happening. Plot twist, he already knows. See, we have a struggle in the West with prayer, and that struggle is this. Since God already knows everything, why should I tell him anything? You ever had that idea? I don't need to pray. He already knows. Why should I tell him? The Hebrew mindset I was taught in seminary is different. Same set of facts, different attitude. We say, since God already knows everything, why tell him anything? The Hebrew mindset is this. Since God already knows everything, there's nothing I can't tell him. You can tell him, I feel forsaken, I feel forgotten, I feel like you're hiding from me, I feel like you're angry with me, and your heavenly Father will say, I know. I know you feel that way. Now, those of you who know the Bible and have read through the rest of the book, is anything David said here true? Has God actually forgotten him? Is it a case of God up in heaven saying, oh, oh David, oh, it's you, I, sorry, been busy. No, none of this is true. He has not been forgotten. He has not been forsaken. He has more than his own counsel, and God knows exactly who David's enemies are, and he knows due to his promise when and how he's going to deal with them. But for now, you're left with a complaint. You might want to take it a step further in your journaling, and please, if you're going to be this honest with God, if you're going to be as honest as God is, as David is with God, you might want to keep that to yourself, or you might want to tear those pages up as soon as you're done and you've thrown it out, thrown it all out and thrown it into God's hands. Be a little more practical. For the last couple of years, I've started practicing for myself something I call one-sentence self-awareness. And what that means is I cut through the fog by sitting with my Bible and sitting in prayer and thinking about when I'm stressed, when I'm depressed, when I'm whatever, when all the sad notes are raging. One sentence self-awareness is my self-imposed discipline of writing out in a single sentence what's really going on. Because sometimes when you're really bummed out, you don't even know. Everything stinks. One of my kids years ago, and it's a family joke now, he had just come to the end of his rope. He couldn't find Kleenex. <laughs> and that was the breaking point. <laughs> and we've all been there. It wasn't about the Kleenex. It was about the 5,800 5, other things that had come up to that point. And now I can't find Kleenex. The world is over. So I write down in painful honesty just between me and God in a single sentence of self-awareness what I'm really thinking, what I'm really feeling, and I give it to Him. That's the complaint. Thankfully, there's more. Let's study and read the Bible together. Verse 3 says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, and light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. He's not complaining anymore. What's he doing? This song has three movements. It's six verses and three movements. Two verses each. The first is a flat-out complaint, tinged with accusation. What's the next part? He's a request. 
He's calling. He's crying out for help. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, unless he's merely being poetic, and I don't think so, David has actually come to think that whatever's going on might kill him. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And he cries out for help, and that's the first movement out of that kind of grief, out of that kind of pit. If you stay only with the complaint and you never cry out for help, you'll never make your way through the sad music. Verse 6, verse 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And this is one of those times where paying the, reading the Bible slowly really pays off and you need to look at the verbs. I have trusted in your steadfast love. What tense is that in? That's David is referring to the past. I'm in the pit today, but I remember I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart, new tense, shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This third movement is what I could call a new confidence in God's love. Where did David get it? He got it by looking back. And remember, he's writing a song. There is absolutely no way his circumstances changed between writing the first line and the last. It's just six verses. There's no way all of David's troubles, all of his enemies had been dealt with between verse 1 and verse 6. His circumstances haven't changed, but David has. And can I tell you, dear Christian, you have greater reason to be encouraged than he did because he wrote 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And David, who had heard the covenant of Exodus 34, verse 6, and had asked himself, where's that God? Where's the God of steadfast love? Where's the God of mercy? Where's the God who deals with enemies? He had no idea, inspired though he was, close to God as he was, author of Scripture as he was, he had no idea how good God could be because to fully understand who God is and how faithful and merciful and kind he is, you need to look at Jesus. And you need to be reminded of the good news which has phrases like this, Romans 5 verse 6. Let's read this together, please. It says... For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who is God? He is the God who dies at the right time when we were weak, when we were ungodly ourselves. Verse 10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? In other words, David in Psalm 13, even before the arrival of Jesus, literally a thousand years before the birth of Christ, finds bright hope and makes a future commitment. God, I'm in the pit today, but I'm going to sing again because I've looked back on your faithfulness. How much more should we? We have hope for the future because of God's faithful love to us in the past. All David had to look at was a covenant given to Moses. We have something much greater. We have more than a covenant. We have a cross. 
We have a new covenant, not written in stone, but written on human hearts, purchased and secured by the blood of Jesus himself. Listen to how it's explained in the same book of Romans. We're going to read this together before we're done. The context is the Christian faith in the first century. We've skipped forward a thousand years. Paul, who has already suffered greatly for the cause of Christ, is writing to discourage Romans, Christians. They're in the capital. It is from Rome that the worst persecution will come. There's going to be a verse here in the middle that will mystify you. It says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And it seems like an interruption in the middle of this majestic passage which is talking to you about God's faithful, unfailing love. And the reason it's thrown in there is it's quoting the Old Testament saying the experience of some Christians in the first century is this. For the sake of Jesus, they're being killed all day long. Their life by their own estimation doesn't appear to be worth more than the worth of, than the, worth of the life of a sheep who's headed to the slaughterhouse. That's what they felt like. That's how their culture was treating them. But that dark, menacing note is in the middle only to make greater emphasis of the brightnesses of the promise, the brightness of the promises of Romans 8. Let's read it together, Romans 8, verse 31. This is what the cross of Christ has done for you, even in the pit, even when you believe that God has forsaken you, even when you believe that God is hiding from you, even though you can't name it, you feel that all hope is gone, here's the truth. Paul wrote this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's God's love for you after the cross of Christ. That's your confidence. Not your circumstances, not your counsel, not you figuring it out, not you doing better. The faithful, unfailing, ever merciful, self-sacrificial love of God who looks across all creation and says to you, there's absolutely nothing that can separate you from me because I love you. No wonder David said in verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
If David could say it, you can say it much more. And you come to the end of this sermon and your circumstances haven't changed a bit. What you can have is a new perspective. That life is hard, but God is good. That sin and pain and loss are real. That people are mean and often evil. But God is righteous. And God has promised by His own will, because of His own choice, because true, strong love always initiates, is always proactive, He has promised to be faithful to you, to keep you, to guard you, safe in His love. And someday, you'll see with me in heaven, by the grace of Jesus, that try as I might, I did not tell you how half of how good and faithful and merciful your heavenly Father actually is. Where do we find hope for the future? We find hope for the future by looking back at the past so that we can say with David, I will sing again. There's two groups of people in this room. There's two groups of people in any room on earth. Those who have this assurance because they have given up on themselves and they've turned their lives and their sin over to Jesus. Maybe you've had an experience with those people who call themselves Christians and you found them to be self-righteous. If you have, that's a tragedy. Because the whole claim of Christianity is not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, where He trades lives with you. He takes your pain, your sin, your guilt, your shame, your darkness. He absorbs it and He trades it instead for His righteousness, His goodness, His light. That's why whatever happens on this earth, and I say this with all due reverence and humility because I know, having lived as long as I have, that life can put me on my knees that quickly. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm telling you that God is faithful. I'm telling you that we have hope for the future because of God's faithful love in our past, and it will not change. So if you're one of those in the room who's been maybe orbiting spiritual ideas. Maybe you got dragged to church. I don't know, it's the time of year where families drag others to church. Set aside whether you even wanted to be here or not and consider Jesus. That's my invitation for you. We're not preaching ourselves, we're preaching Jesus. The one who died to reconcile with you with God, who extends to you his very life, who lives even now according to what we just read, to intercede for you. So you're covered. You're safe. His love is faithful to you. Turn your life over to him if you haven't. And if you have, and probably the majority of you have, this is your Savior. No matter how dark the night and how sad the song, this is your Savior, you can always find hope for your future by looking back at the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as individuals talk to you now, I pray that you would give them the grace of honesty and humility. Before we sing our final song, can I just give you a moment to yourself? just between you and the Lord. Have you come to the point where you're ready to give up on yourself and trust Jesus instead? That's his invitation. He said to people, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, turn around 
follow me because I'm here. God himself on earth to actually die on a cross, to rise from the dead, to give eternal life. Maybe you've never come to the point where you've placed your trust in Jesus. You've learned about the Bible, you know some songs, you know some stuff, but you've never personally humbled yourself and say, Jesus, I'm done trusting myself, I'm trusting you. If you'll talk to him in whatever words you have, he'll save you. He really will. He did for me. My life and the lives of untold millions is forever different because we stopped looking in religion or self and we trusted the Savior. If you do that this morning, the good news will be true for you. And if you know the good news, no matter how hard life is here now, this is your Savior. This is His love. You're going to be well, safe, healthy, whole in the end because He loves you so much that He will make it so. He will not fail you. So I'll have just a moment of silence for you to pray. And if you trust Christ this morning, take the card in your bulletin and let us know. If you have questions, let us know. If you need to have a conversation, just write what you need to on the card. Check the right box. We'll be in touch. Father, if there's even a single person here who is in need of your grace, I pray that they would turn to you in faith confess themselves as sinners in need of your grace and ask you, Jesus, to save them. I pray, God, that they would give us the privilege of knowing they've done that as well so that we can pray for them, encourage them, celebrate. And Lord, I know there are heartbroken Christians who dragged themselves in this morning. I pray that the grace in this passage would be real to them and that you would sustain them long after we've parted ways this morning. We ask that you would receive this offering, Lord. We give it in the name of Jesus, not as repayment, but as simple worship and obedience. In Jesus' name.